Merry Christmas. We are glad y'all are here. Um, if you're visiting with friends or family, we want to welcome you and let y'all know we really do count it a privilege to, uh, to worship together. Um, we have lots of reason to worship our God who has been very, very good to us. And so um, to have guests and be able to do that together is... If anyone wants to know what I want for Christmas... Maybe that's uh, just a random question. Or not. We're going to be today. Let's pray and then we'll get going. Lord, we come to you now and we thank you for um, the abundant goodness that everyone in this room has been on the receiving end of. Lord, you are great. You are greatly to be praised. Your greatness is unsearchable, yet you reveal it to us at least in part, and we get to join together. We don't have to whisper. We sing your praises. We know that you inhabit the praises of your people, so you're present. You're with us. You bless us. You give us guidance. You give us wisdom. You give us insight. The Spirit gives us understanding. We can open the Word and read things that you have chosen to breathe out. And Lord, my prayer is that we would never, ever become a people that take such realities lightly, but we would allow those realities to inform all the rest. Lord, we want to lift up uh, Grace Community Church and uh, Pastor Steve Lawson um, and just pray that they're enjoying you this morning. I pray that Steve and Karen, um, I pray for their marriage, that they're enjoying you and, and worshiping you at home. And that as he steps in the pulpit this morning to preach uh, what so many other preachers and pastors are, are communicating a message about Christmas. I pray that he does so with a heart that is full as he has spent time uh, with you this week. I pray that you would continue uh, to just allow he and Karen to enjoy each other as they enjoy you. And I pray that you'd bless that congregation abundantly this morning. We continue to pray for those who aren't with us this morning um, due to you know sickness or any other thing. We pray for the Thorntons. And last week, we prayed that you would continue to, to heal uh, baby Amelia. And we praise you this week that, um, that she gets to move out of a room and, and go and celebrate with family. And uh, we pray that um, their time there at the Ronald McDonald House is sweet and uh, memorable. And it's so sweet watching their family all come together to celebrate Christmas there, um, rightly. Uh, Lord, we also thank you for uh, the, the healing you gave little Zachariah Way Casey. And just, I mean, we're talking about heart surgeries and brain surgeries and people healing from them. And we just give you all the glory for that and pray that the, the Way Caseys are, are enjoying you in that um, this Christmas. We continue to pray for Christian Hass as she is um, still in the hospital and pray that you would allow uh, healing there, allow the doctors to have wisdom and insight. Uh, at this point, we pray particularly that you would, you would heal her from the pneumonia so that the rest of the healing can continue. And we pray uh, for her family, that you would be a comfort and encouragement to them uh, through this season. We pray for our time to, this morning, that you would speak clearly to us through your word. We love you. We praise you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and turn to 1 John chapter 3. The title of the sermon this morning is The Reason the Son of God Appeared. We're in 1 John 3 with a focus on verses 5 through 10. Let's read those together. 1 John 3, verse 5 says, 
you know that he appeared to take away sin. And in him, there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning, and no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This passage serves the main purpose of warning the church not to be deceived about two different groups of people. More particularly, it's warning them not to be deceived about two different types of offspring, particularly the offspring of Satan and the offspring of God. So what I want us to ask as we, as we look at this, and it's about the kind of life that we live in light of the appearing of our Lord, and it talks about this offspring, and there's offspring of Satan and offspring of God, and it has some indicators of who goes with who and how do you prove who your father is there. Um, I want us to, to ask the question, when did this begin? These two different offsprings living in two different ways. When did this begin? And interestingly, we're going to find the answer in the same place we found our answer last week. Go ahead and turn to Genesis 3. Keep your finger in 1 John, but turn all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, almost the beginning, in Genesis 3. To answer the question, when did the differences between these two offsprings begin, it takes us the same place as last week. Last week, we talked about the shadow of Christ. In Colossians, it says that there are many things that serve as shadows, but Christ is the substance. And I use the example of our front door, where if someone's walking up the front walkway, you can see their shadow before they get inside. So if I'm home alone with the kids and I see the shadow of my wife coming up, I'm filled with shadowy anticipation because I know that soon she will be in the house. But what's better, the shadow or the substance? Well, I can't wrap my arms around a shadow. I can't share the details of the day with a shadow. The substance is better. So last week, we considered all of these um, this anticipation of sinless offspring that started in Genesis 3 and led to the first advent, the first coming of Jesus, that he was anticipated for that long. And this week, we're going to try to answer the question, when did the difference between these two offsprings begin? And it takes us to the exact same place in Genesis 3. Look at verse 15. This is the Lord speaking, and in fact, he's speaking to the serpent after man and woman have been deceived and they have fallen, they've eaten the fruit that we know they're not supposed to eat. And in verse 15, the Lord says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Other translations say he shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. I, I tend to like that because it's a little more definitive, a crushing of the head of the enemy because what began there was this eager anticipation for sinless offspring that would arrive and crush the head of Satan. But at the same time, what also began in that same moment is enmity between the offspring of God and the offspring of Satan. Now, enmity is, is not a word that we use all the time. We don't we're not at odds with someone and tell our friend, yes, I'm at enmity with this person. That's not a, a normal uh, word that we use. And it just means you're, you're at odds. You're, you're, you, you, are, you have differences between the two of you. It's a state or feeling of being actively opposed to one another. So from the beginning, 
In Genesis 3, after the fall, Jesus shows up. Um, they're hiding behind a tree, and he, one of the statements that he makes is, I will put enmity between you, your offspring, and, and my offspring. So there's this enmity that exists, and what I want you all to see is that it was placed there by God. You see that? It didn't just show up randomly as a result of sin. The enmity that exists, the opposition that exists between the offspring of God and the offspring of Satan exists because God said, I will put enmity between you. The reason I, I stress that point is because we need not be surprised when someone opposes the way we think or feel or move as Christians. I, I'm sort of weary of Christians communicating what they believe, and someone says, I don't believe that. <gasps> I'm shocked. How dare you not believe what I believe? Well, God put enmity between the offspring of Satan and the offspring of him from the beginning. So if we know that he put it there, it changes the way we will respond in the moments where we have opposition. We'll come back to that later. Turn back to 1 John chapter 3 and look at verses 7 and 8 particularly. Back to 1 John chapter 3. Particularly verses seven and eight. What I want to, the question I want to ask is, how does this enmity um, manifest itself? In verses seven and eight, it says, "Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil." For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So how does this enmity between these two offsprings manifest itself? Well, it manifests itself in what you make a practice of. Do you make a practice of sinning or do you make a practice of pursuing righteousness? Because one, the, those whose father is the devil, he's been sinning from the beginning. And those whose father is God, in him there is no sin. And so this enmity manifests itself in people living two different kinds of lives. One is, is settling into a way of righteousness, and one is settling into a way, making a practice of sinning. Now, I want you to know that 1 John chapter, chapter 3 has always intimidated me. And as I was preparing this week and praying, um, I was like, Lord, you know, it's Christmas. Where do you want me to go? Where, uh, you know, because the, the pastoral pressure is, you know, share the Christmas story with oomph and gusto, wow everybody with, with this story that they've all heard a thousand times, tell it in a different way so that they're, they're left marveling at the Christ child. And I was like, okay, Lord, I want to do that. I'm cool with that. Um, what, this is a sweet privilege to preach the Sunday before Christmas. Where do you want me to go? And he led me to 1 John 3, and I'm like, Lord, are you, are you sure? Are you positive? Because frankly, 1 John chapter 3 terrifies me. I, I, I read it and I tremble. Why? Well, because I struggle with sin every day. And I know that everyone sitting here struggles with sin every day. And it says, he who makes a practice of, sin, of sinning is of the devil. I think verses like that are meant to make us stop and say, okay, am I of the devil? Or am I not of the devil and am I of God? Verses like that with language that strong and that particular and that direct are meant to make you take a close look inward. See, sometimes people use these verses for judgment where it's like, oh, okay, I see the difference. Your dad's the devil. Your dad is Jesus. 
your dad's the devil, and we try to judge each other based on something that we see, and that's not the intention of this. The intention of this, what he says in 1 John chapter 2 at the very beginning is, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. The purpose is not judgment. The purpose is a look inward and saying, am I living according to who I say my father is? Am I living as the offspring of the one who will crush the head of the serpent? So I look at this, and the concerning thing is, well, I struggle with sin every day. So what do I do? Where where do we go from here? Because if that's all there is, if all I have is, if whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, and I know that I struggle with sin every day, and, and that's it, like if I was to end the message right now, you wouldn't go have a very Merry Christmas, would you? If I was to end the message right now, it'd be like, that was not very hope-giving or encouraging whatsoever. That guy stinks. Where's Ben? That would be the response. So what? So what do we do? Where do we go from here? And I think going just a little earlier in the book is helpful. Turn to 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 10. First John 1, chapter, uh, verse 8 says... If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So how do we remedy, reconcile these two verses I think the first encouragement here is don't deceive yourself. You have sin. Merry Christmas. You have a sin problem. Now, there's, there's, a, there's a remedy for that, and it exists only in Christ, only in the one who appeared to destroy the works of the devil. You have a sin problem. Don't deceive yourself by saying you don't. You have sin, so the question is, what do we do about it? I see John in this pastoral epistle saying, you have sin, don't lie about it. Don't make God a liar by saying you don't have sin. You have a sin problem. And then he goes on to say, if you make a practice of sinning, you're of the devil. That means in order to not start here and get here, something's got to happen for me not to make a practice of sinning. So what do we do about it? Something, I was reading some you know, translations of this text, and they have all these different kinds of infinitives and subjective or present infinitives and aorist infinitives and all these things where I start hearing those words and I kind of shut down um, because they scare me a little bit. But I, I kept reading, and what I found was just that it helps to explain the translation of this so that we don't misuse a verse. Because if we misuse this verse, what we'll, what we'll walk away with is hopelessness. We won't be encouraged by the good news of Jesus if we mistranslate the verse. And so I want you all to know that the verse does not translate, he who is of God is no longer capable of committing a sin. Don't read those verses and say, it looks like Jesus' followers are no longer capable of committing sin. And if someone who claims to be a Jesus follower tells you that they are no longer capable of committing the sin, be sure to take them back to 1 John 1, where they're not deceived. Because that's, that's not what the gospel is. The gospel isn't, you're no longer capable of sin. Way to go. And then you struggle with this, but I struggle with sin. What do I do there? So that's not how it translates. The translation a proper translation of this verse is, he who is of God cannot settle into a way of sin. He who is of God, she who is of God 
anyone who is of God, the offspring that was mentioned in chapter 3 of Genesis, cannot settle into a way of sin. So the question is, what way of life are you settling into? Or maybe more appropriately, whose way of life are you settling into? Are you settling into a way of Satan? Or are you settling into a way of God? Are you proving you're the offspring of the enemy? Or are you proving you're the offspring of our Savior and Lord? What way of life are you settling into? <clears throat> Biblically speaking, you most often settle into a way of life by first settling into a way of thinking. That's not just some pop psychology thing where you try to get people to think different so that they act different. That's actually quite biblical. And in Romans 12, Paul makes this appeal to the Roman church. And he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds. And in the pastoral epistle here in 1 John, John is appealing to what they know. He's appealing to their minds. When we see, don't, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds, I want you guys to know, you who with me struggle with futility and cynicism and that thought of, well, can we really change? Can people really change? Can we expect anything to really get better? According to the Bible, transformation can happen, and it takes place by the renewal of your mind. So when we're asking this question about what way of life are we settling into, we have to ask, well, what way of thinking are you settling into? Because my hope for you, my hope for myself, is that if we claim to be the offspring of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we would settle into a way of thinking that leads to transformation in a healthy, Christ-like way. You can change through the renewal of your mind by God's design. In 1 John 2, go ahead and turn back there. It's just a page before. We see John's appeal, and he's not appealing to them on some newfangled thing that he found. He's telling them something that they've already known and that they've known for a while. And we see in 1 John 2, verse 12, he says, I'm writing to you, little children. And he's not actually writing to like the children's ministry of the church. I want y'all to know that he's writing to them and he's referring to them as little children because as a, as a father type figure, he loves them and he wants the best for them. And it's not a demeaning and condescending thing in a negative way. It's a positive thing. And he says, I love you, little children, and I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for, your, for his namesake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. And I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. He's appealing to what they already know in hopes to affect the way that they live. That's largely what we're doing this morning in this sermon. In the sermon, I'm appealing to what you already know about Jesus coming to earth in hopes that it affects the way you live. That's what he's doing. He's saying, guys, you know this. You've conquered, the, you've overcome the evil one in Christ. You guys know what God did. You know your state now, even though you're sinners, but Jesus has done something and it changes things for you. And because of that, you need to live in a particular way. Particularly in chapter three, go ahead and turn back there. When urging the children of God to act like God, He's urging the children of God to act like God. He's urging the children of God not to sin. He's already said in chapter 2, the reason I'm writing this letter to you is so that you will not sin. In chapter 3, when urging the children of God to act like God and not sin, John makes two very massive statements. 
And the first one is found in verse 8. And the second in verse 5. Verse 8 says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And verse 5 says, The reason he appeared was to take away sins. That's what makes this a Christmassy message. That's why I said, okay, Lord, maybe 1 John 3 is appropriate for the Sunday before Christmas because it says the reason the Son of God appeared, the reason baby Jesus was born in a manger of a virgin, the reason that they followed the star, the reason that they came from miles is because the reason he appeared was to destroy the works of the devil to destroy the works of the devil. This is a Christmassy message. If you're sitting there thinking, Scott, you knew my family was gonna be here and all you've talked about is sending to the devil. Thanks a lot. Lunch is not gonna be pleasant. If you're thinking, I invited my friend from work and you've talked about sin and the devil. It's Christmas. Talk about something positive. Oh, it's positive. He appeared to destroy the works of the devil. Thank gosh, that was a well-placed amen. That doesn't happen a lot here. Makes me want to get more excited in the preaching and raise my voice. Amen, indeed. Destroying the works of the devil. I was trying to think of some examples of, some good examples of destruction. Y'all ever seen a car just destroyed, just impounded, like at an impound lot, just smashed? Like, there's no coming back from that. No one's going to rehabilitate that car and try to sell it. There's no coming back from it. You ever seen Gone in 60 Seconds? This isn't very Christmassy, but go with it. At the end, when Eleanor, the Shelby GT Mustang, they've done so much to, to make it good and to get it through, and it's a little banged up, and then that big crusher just comes down and goes, and you're just like, because there ain't no coming back from that. Destruction. Imagine how futile it would be if your job was to detail cars at an impound lot. Right? Pretty futile. You sit there and you scrub and scrub and scrub and you step back just in time for that big thing to go and watch all the tires explode and that shiny spot to disappear into a pile of rubble. That would be pretty futile. That's a significant picture of destruction. There's no coming back from it. And it would be futile for you to say, uh, what do you do for a living? Well, I detail cars at the impound lot. Okay, what a way to spend your life. If he appeared to destroy the works of the devil and your life is about the works of the devil, it's more futile than detailing cars at the impound lot. He appeared to destroy it completely. I was sharing that example with my wife last night, and she said, you know, a better example might be. I said, okay, I'm listening. And she said, more people might relate to cleaning the house while the kids are still home. We have a seven-year-old, a five-year-old, a two-year-old, and another two-year-old, and one of those two-year-olds who shall remain nameless, Henry, is very destructive. <laughs> I installed some new kitchen flooring, and like before I had finished installing it, there's a chunk out of it because of a metal thing that fell and all that. We put the Christmas tree up. Henry puts his ball on the ground. Whoo! Right in the middle of the tree. Knocks stuff off. Lindsay and I have to kind of look at each other and say, that was, that was a pretty good kick. It was impressive. <laughs> but destructive... You can turn around and clean one area of their room, and you turn around, and they have absolutely destroyed that area of the room. So maybe if that helps you to see a picture of destruction and futility, then run with it. The reason I share that is that he, he appeared to destroy the works of the devil in your life. That's a, that's a Christmas message 
not just randomly destroying the works of the devil like in the wilderness or random occurrences, but particularly in your life. Think about Adam and Eve. God appeared to destroy the works of the devil there. The devil came in, the devil deceived them, the devil told them they can be like God, and then God appeared and said, I'll destroy the works of the devil. I'm gonna put enmity between his offspring and my offspring. But he, he appeared to destroy the works of the devil in your life. He appeared to take away your sin. To be the offspring of God is to walk in a manner that is worthy of that reality. So I think one of the best ways for his offspring to celebrate Christmas is for us to live like our father. If you go home and talk to friends and family, what was the Christmas message? Be like Jesus. Not new, but it's a knowledge that you have. Most in here have a knowledge of God, and that knowledge is meant to change you. It is meant to change the way that you live. It is meant to change the way you spend your time. What I want us to consider this morning is God did not take on the flesh only to conquer death, but also to conquer life. A lot of us think only about death, and we make decisions about Jesus based only on what happens when we die. But what I want us to consider this morning is he also died, he also arrived, he also showed up to conquer life. The first coming, the first advent of Christ was meant to affect not only what happens to believers when they die, but also every moment leading up to death. I always feel an urgency to share that message because in our community and in our context, there are so many who make a decision about Jesus, they claim to be a particular type of offspring, and it all has to do with what happens when they die. And there's no evidence that he died to conquer your life as well. He died to affect every moment leading up to your death. There are so many that are disconnected because that part of the story hasn't maybe been made clear or it hasn't sunk in or it hasn't found purchase in their lives. And if you're here today, I want you to hear that. He died to conquer death. Be encouraged. Last week we considered in Romans 5 that sin entered the world through Adam and when sin came in, death came in. Humanity was changed and we needed redemption. And he did. He came to conquer death, but he also came to conquer every moment leading up to death. So a great way for us to celebrate Christmas is to live in a manner worthy of that reality. What does that look like? Spend and be spent gladly on the souls of other people. Do what Jesus did and look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Do what God did in your life in calling you his offspring and reaching down, condescending to, to redeem you out of your sin while we were yet sinners. He did that. And go to the lives of other people, whether you think they deserve it or not, and try to figure out and discern what their deepest need is and do everything you can to meet it. That's one of the best ways to resolve any conflict you have, just so y'all know. This person I'm in conflict with, this opposition, this enmity, what do they need? I want to discern their deepest need and I want to do everything I can to meet it. It's a great way to resolve conflict and to put enmity to, to rest. Spend and be spent gladly for other people. Serve. And, and I think just one thing that's real practical, nothing new, is, is make sure Christmas doesn't come and go and your family totally misses that it's about the, the reality that Jesus Christ appeared to conquer the works of the devil and to take away sin. And in him we have hope, we have redemption in our death and in our life. We're gonna take the supper. Turn to 1 Corinthians 11. We made a decision a few years back 
to take the supper every week. Uh, at the beginning of the life of Crosspoint, we were one of the churches that we would take it on Easter and we would take it on Christmas and maybe once or twice between. And it was 1 Corinthians 11 that shed some light on the reality that, you know what, we should probably not allow a week to go by without going to the table, without humbling ourselves before the Lord, without considering our Lord in, in light of what he tells us to consider about him. And in 1 Corinthians 11, look at verses 23 through 26. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. So the first thing I want you guys to do as we distribute the elements is give thanks. Spend a few minutes thanking the Lord for the unbelievably abundant and profound blessings that he has placed on your life in conquering both death and life. Spend some moments being specific, not vague and random, but specific as we distribute the elements, giving thanks. And then it goes on to say, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. That's how he conquered death, and that's how he conquered life. That's how he destroyed the works of the devil. It's his broken body. He broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup... You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Lord will come back one day. And it's interesting because what we read about on that night before he was betrayed, that was the last time he took the supper with his people. And it's so cool to consider the next time he takes the supper will be when he comes back in the second advent, in the return, with us. Like that, You're going to be at that supper if you're the offspring of God. For now, what we do is we give thanks and we take it in remembrance of him. And what I want y'all to know is that Christ's aim here is not ritualistic. It's transformational. He wants us to remember him not just as a ritual that's empty and not just to, to utter words that, that have no real depth. He wants us to do it in remembrance of him because in setting our minds on him, we are transformed into his likeness. And there's no better way to celebrate his birth than to be transformed into his likeness and to put his glory on display for all the world to see when they're so utterly distracted by so many other things. Let's pray and then we'll distribute the elements. Lord, we come to you now. We thank you for this day. Lord, we thank you for Christmas. We thank you for a celebration where we can stop as believers and say, our Lord appeared to take away sin and our Lord came to earth as a baby to destroy the works of the devil. Lord, I don't think I've brought anything new before the body this morning. So my prayer is that you would accomplish in us what it appears you accomplished in those that John was addressing, and that in thinking about these things, in remembering these things, and setting our minds on these things, in taking a supper in remembrance, that we would be transformed. That we would act as the offspring who are of God. That we would not live lives like that of Satan, who has been sinning from the beginning, but that we would live our lives 
like that of God in whom there is no sin. That our pursuit would be to put to death what is in the flesh. That our pursuit would be to set our minds on the things above. That our pursuit, that our settled way of life would be to be truly transformed by the renewal of our minds for your glory according to your created purpose as a God who is infinite in wisdom, infinite in power, and lacking in absolutely nothing. Thank you for loving us with a love that's lacking in no way. We love you. I pray that this body would wholeheartedly right now come before you with thanksgiving and in remembrance of what our Lord has accomplished. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we take this up, I'm, I'm reminded of, uh, of the reality that some, some in here have had a really hard month. Some in here have had a really hard year. And before I preach, someone walked up whose, whose wife has pneumonia right now and, and is trying to recover from a brain tumor being removed. There's people who have had open-heart surgery. There's people who have had job problems. There's, there's a number of things. And some of you may be going, man, I'm glad he appeared to destroy the works of the devil, but it feels like the devil's having a heyday uh, in my life. And I want to remind you that one of the best ways to really come to grips with, with the present and with reality is to set your mind on, on eternal matters. And to know that there will come a time for the follower of Christ, for the offspring of God, when he looks at you and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. And he says, enter into the joy of your master. I know there are some in this body who are so eager to hear those words, who who are like, man, he couldn't come back sooner. And we can anticipate that. But as we anticipate his second coming, as we anticipate his return, we set our minds on who Christ is for us now in our life. And we take these things in remembrance of him. In light of that, take and eat. Take and drink.